Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We are continuing our series through uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, today is chapter 6, the very famous chapter, as you can see in the overhead here, Daniel in the lion's den. Let me start out, though, before we get to the text, with a couple of, of uh, vignettes uh, that leads into our theme. Uh, Dina is a ninth grade Messianic Jewish believer. She's new to the school and she wants to fit in and to make friends. By the end of the week, she's, she's invited into one of the most popular cliques. Uh, she's thrilled. One day, six of them are in the hallway and they see Rivka coming down the hall. Rivka, she's overweight, poorly dressed, always made fun of. She says hello to the group, but before Dina, the new student, can say hi back to her, the other five girls burst out in laughter and derision and mocking at, at Dina. Uh, sorry, mocking at, at Rivka, sorry. Dina sees the tears in Rivka's eyes. What will Dina do? As a believer, how will she respond? Second scenario, Aaron is a good-looking guy in, in senior high. He gave his heart to the Lord uh, a year ago. One of the most popular girls in school is interested in him. She invites him over to her house to meet her parents. But when he gets there, her parents aren't there. She says, oh, they had to leave, but you can come on in. And they're sitting watching TV. She comes real close to him. Aaron wants to stay pure until he's married. She gives him a kiss. She says, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm on the pill, she giggles. I know my parents, won't, they won't be back for a while, if you know what I mean. What will Aaron's stand be in the face of temptation? Benjamin just got a new job at the bank as a loan officer. Uh, he's all excited about helping to make people's, uh, make a difference in people's lives. A friend comes over working at the bank and says to him, Ben, uh, this is off the record, but I'm telling you, the reason they let the last guy go who's, whose place you took was because he made too many loans to minorities and to Jews. The boss doesn't go for that. That afternoon, an Hispanic couple comes in to, for a mortgage. Their paperwork says they can make the payments. But just then, his friend walks by, shakes his head back and forth, no. What's Ben going to do? We all have choices to make from time to time, whether or not to take a stand for righteousness for the Lord. Maybe someone will ask you to lie for them, to, to cover up their mistake. Maybe someone's going to offer you something you know you should reject, but you don't want to hurt their feelings. Maybe something you've always wanted is within your reach, but you have to compromise your commitment to God to get it. Maybe someone one day will force you to choose between the Lord and your job. Have you made up your mind, what will you do? Most of us can probably recall a time in our lives uh, where we didn't take a stand and we regretted it. We now would love to have a chance to, to, to do it over again and to make it right. Well, today in Daniel chapter 6, we're going to look at someone who knew he was being watched to see if he would do the right thing, to take a stand for the Lord regardless of the cost. He knew what it would, be, what, what it would look like to look down upon because he didn't fit in with the crowd. He knew what it was like to be lied about 
uh, because of his honesty. He knew what it was like to have his good deeds twisted and called evil. He knew what it was like to have others betray him when he had done no wrong. He knew what it was like to take a stand for the Lord all by himself. He knew what it was like to be watched and to take a stand. Daniel was dedicated to serving the Lord. And he served him openly uh, and faithfully all his life. Toward the end of his life, he ends up in the lion's den. So we need to see two points here, and we'll put on the overhead. Number one, as you serve God openly in your life, people will be watching. Will you take a stand for righteousness? And number two, as you serve the Lord openly in your life, the Lord will also be watching. And for believers, whether we like it or not, we are marked people, marked for being observed, for observation. Right from the beginning of our history as a covenant people, Israel was set apart from the surrounding nations because we were given a different set of values through God's revelation to us. He has chosen us by his grace to be a light to the nations. Even when we failed, we were still hated for being different. In the case of Daniel, it was his purity of life, uh, which couldn't avoid giving offense uh, to his wicked contemporaries because he showed them up for what they weren't. Whenever you make this claim for your relationship with, with God uh, by your holy living, you're bound to face similar problems as Daniel. In fact, Yeshua warns his disciples that if they witnessed to him clearly and faithfully and served him loyally, they would inevitably face opposition from those who opposed their way of life. Of course, the same thing happened to Yeshua himself. His very perfection only served to increase the hatred of those who were conscious of their own guilt and refused to repent. In our relativistic, pluralistic society, people are offended when Yeshua says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Are we willing to take a stand for the scriptures and to be ridiculed for our faith? Daniel was. So let's turn to, to Daniel 6. There's been a regime change here in the history of, 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 the, of the world, as we saw at the end of, of Daniel chapter 5. The Persians under Cyrus, also called Darius. Darius, by the way, is a title. Uh, they're now in power. So let's look at Daniel 6, verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to send apart to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, over those 120, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one. And the satraps might be accountable to them, that the king might not suffer loss. So the first thing Darius does when he comes to power is to reorganize his kingdom, sets apart 120 governors to supervise the kingdom, and then the three top rulers over them. The purpose we're told in verse 2 is so that the king might not suffer loss. So right here we have, from the start, we have insight into the character of this king. He's not reorganizing the bureaucracy and the structure of the kingdom for the benefit of the people, to, to increase justice, to, to aid the poor. No, he's appointing these people for his own benefit to protect his assets, that he might not suffer loss. This king has a huge ego. It's all about him and his wealth and his greed. <clears throat> now, one of these, these three top rulers over, um, under the king is Daniel. He's lived through the entire Babylonian kingdom, 
is now appointed to help head up the new Medo-Persian Empire. He's an old man now. He's in his 80s. Uh, but, be, but because he has so distinguished himself, the king plans to make him the high vizier over the whole kingdom. Look at verse 3. Uh, then the overhead. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the, the other commissioners and the satraps began trying to find ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to his government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was found in him. All the other governors became intensely jealous of Daniel. Uh, the, the lion called jealousy begins to roar and attack and consume them. The king chose Daniel the, the way that God chose Israel, the way that he chooses us on the overhead. Love confers a kind of chosenness on the one who's loved. Love whispers, I choose you. I want to be on your side. And for we ragged and rejected people, for, pe for we people with, with misshapen spirits uh, and crooked hearts and lopsided souls, this is life to be chosen. When you're chosen, you're seen as unique. Uh, when you're chosen, you're recognized as someone who has something to contribute. When you're chosen, it means somebody wants you. But to the world, uh, and to the medial Persian governors, uh, for Daniel to be chosen meant in their twisted, jealous eyes that he was chosen at their expense. And this is part of the satanic spirit of anti-Semitism. How dare this Jew be elevated above us? The world says that to be chosen must mean to be chosen at the expense of somebody else. To be better than or, or, or superior to or to be the object of jealousy, to be the favorite. In this worldly, carnal perspective, chosenness becomes a competitive game. And the consolation prize for the losers is, is this malignant little creature called envy. According to this view, chosenness comes at the expense of others' rejection, thus breeding jealousy and the eye and hurrah, uh, the, the, the evil eye. That's how the world views chosenness. But in God's plan, your chosenness enriches me instead of diminishing me. Israel is called God's chosen, his chosen people. Not in the sense that we're his favorites, but we have some special inside track to heaven. Rather, in the scriptures, chosenness is always for the purpose of service. He chose Abraham that through him all the people of the earth would be blessed. Israel was chosen not instead of the other nations, but precisely for the sake of the other nations. God's plan was that as his covenant, covenant is incarnated on the earth, all the peoples of the earth shall be drawn to it. This was the realization of, of Simon Peter in Acts chapter 10, and the vision of the sheep being let down, all the young clean animals uh, that rocked his world with the, with the, when the meaning finally dawned on him. And so we read in Acts 10 verse 34, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation and tribe who fears him and who, do, and who does what's right. But our world plays a different game. We're obsessed with competitive individualism, uh, with a narcissistic preoccupation with, uh, with self. 
uh, where we're constantly comparing ourselves to others in a spirit of petty jealousy and self-centered envy. You know, I confess that so many of my own thoughts are, are judgmental, comparative, competitive, competitive, leading me away from love. Someone wealthier than me, well, they must be materialistic, shallow. Someone poor just doesn't function as a high of a level as I do. Everyone who drives faster than me, that's, they're an idiot. Anyone who drives slower, they're a moron. Someone who's always complaining uh, is just a victim type. Avoid them. Someone who's always cheerful, oh, they're living in denial. <laughs> I look at others and I say, why can't I have his brains or, or his success or his money or his good looks or his athleticism, his popularity, or especially his hair? <laughs> Or at least, you know, if I can't have it, I wish he didn't either. Better that no one should have success than he should. And so I secretly judge and compare and condemn and let jealousy flood my heart and the overhead. Envy is the toxic bile of those who feel themselves to be unchosen. Envy creates its own misery. Envy, envy, it causes us to feel deficient and defective and diminished, filled with hate and humiliation. Envy is wanting what somebody else has and feeling badly that I don't have it. On the overhead, envy is disliking God's goodness to someone else and dismissing God's goodness to me. Envy is desire and resentment. Envy is anti-community. We're commanded, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. On the overhead, uh, several, and after that one, next overhead, but envy causes me to mourn with those who rejoice and to rejoice when others mourn. <laughs> envy is dangerous because it's opposed to other people. Uh, on the overhead, you know, sins like greed and lust are simply about gratification of my own desires, but envy that only seeks gratification but, but look, seeks to diminish the one I envy. Envy can never be appeased. Uh, uh, indulging envy is like trying to drink your to quench, quench your thirst by drinking salt water. It only makes it worse. Of all the emotions, envy is the most humiliating because it's the most small-minded. Envy is all, it's this all-consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. When I envy someone else, I lose sight of their humanity. You know, when Cain looks at Abel, he no longer sees a brother. Abel is now only the rival that threatens Cain's status before God. Abel is the hated favorite. Abel must go. And so the rival governors, consumed with envy and jealousy, decide that Daniel must go. He must be destroyed. They try to find fault with him, but the Bible says Daniel was faithful. No negligence or corruption could be found in him. The satraps and the administrators, they try to dig up dirt on him, try to make him look bad. They get out their spades and their shovels, and they, and they dug into every closet and every cellar, but they can find no skeletons on Daniel. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. His conduct was pure and right. Can the same be said about you? Can it? We need to be men and women of integrity uh, and honesty and righteousness. Do you work your hardest at your job? 
regardless of your pay, regardless of how interesting you think your work is. Before people notice what kind of believer you are, they first notice what kind of person you are, what kind of worker you are, what kind of student you are. Because if you're not reliable in the everyday world, people will not trust you with things related, related to the spiritual world. Daniel wasn't, was not like the guy in this letter sent to the IRS. Dear IRS, last year when I filed my taxes, I misrepresented my income. Now I can't sleep. Enclosed a check for $150 for back taxes. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> Danny was not like that. <clears throat> Danny was beyond reproach, the text tells us. They, they only had one ground to attack him, his faith. Look at Daniel 6, verse 5. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the laws of his God. So the engineer of our conspiracy, look at verse 7. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, they all get together, and they agree that the king should issue an edict and enforce that decree against anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, your majesty. And if they do, they shall be thrown into the lion's den. So the king's advisors, they go to him, and they say, King, we've got this great idea. You're a great man. We want to honor you. We think you should forbid anyone under the laws of the Medes and Persians, which, which cannot be changed, that for the next 30 days, everyone in the whole kingdom should pray only to you. We're going to make you God for 30 days. Now, now you think about it, this whole suggestion, it's ridiculous. <laughs> if you're God, you're God forever. They're going to make him God for a month. They, they flatter the vanity of this man. Not only is he greedy, he's, he's also vain. Look at verse 9. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Daniel 6, verse 9. Uh, so, the king, so the king's also stupid as well because he signs this decree, no questions asked. He signs an irrevocable decree, I'm God for a month. <laughs> now what's going to happen with Daniel? What will he do? He knows they're watching him to see if he obeys. He could have changed his routine. He could have stopped praying for 30 days or prayed in secret to avoid trouble, do it in hiding you know, where nobody will see. And sadly, many of us would hardly even miss it if we, if we, had, we don't pray for 30 days. Isn't that the truth? But not Daniel. Daniel was a man of prayer. And he would not compromise his testimony. He would take a stand Daniel 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Then you prayed toward Jerusalem, toward the temple or where the temple had been, three times a day. Just as we're told in Psalm 35, David prayed three times a day. Then you prayed just as he had done before. He would not change his habit in the face of persecution. Uh, this was his spiritual discipline built into his life. Prayer was not just some emergency flare he'd send up at a time of crisis. No, prayer was his life and his breath, his way of being, uh, his habit. For Daniel, prayer was, well, it was like breathing. He could not live without it. 
Daniel says to himself, I am not going to cover up my faith. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep serving God. I'm going to keep worshiping him openly, just as I have done all my life. I will not hide my faith. How many of us hide our faith? We hide it from colleagues and, and supervisors at work, or from our HR department, uh, who can make our life miserable, or from our, our classmates at school, or, 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 or at the university who would ridicule us, or from the professor who, who can mark down our grade, or from Jewish, the Jewish community and the rabbis who would discriminate against us. How many of us would have continued to pray openly, openly worship God and honor him? How many of you are even willing to pray uh, at school or at work or at a restaurant if somebody's watching? If you're at a restaurant with non-believers, would you still pray before a meal? Even if the people you're with are watching? Or would you hide your faith? This is a sin we often fall into. We're embarrassed by our faith. Uh, we're blessed to live in a country where we still, thank God, we still actually have the freedom. I'm not sure how much longer. We still actually have the freedom now to express our religious beliefs. But yet, we're cowards. We hide our beliefs. We make up lame excuses. Uh, like, we don't want to offend anybody. But the truth is, if we're honest, the real answer is we're just plain cowards. We read the Bible only when nobody's looking. We only pray when nobody's looking. We talk about our faith only with other known believers. People are watching, we tell ourselves. I'm afraid what would happen if they noticed my faith. And there's many of you who don't even pray much in private either. We really don't pray much at all. And our prayerlessness reveals our heart. It shows a lack of real enjoyment of God. We need to face the fact uh, that many of us really don't enjoy prayer. Or else we would pray more. If we're in love with someone, we long for their companionship. To spend more time in their presence. This illustrates the fact that if our hearts were hungrier for the Lord, we would pray more. If you really enjoyed his presence, you would seek it. If you enjoyed speaking with the Lord, you'd spend more time praying with him. Less time doing other things like, like reading news apps and Twitter and watching YouTube and Snapchat and then TikTok, scrolling through Facebook, downloading endless movies and, and TV shows and news shows. Our prayerlessness proves we really don't enjoy the Lord. But Daniel knew his God. His daily habit was to pray to the Lord openly, facing Jerusalem three times a day, and not even the threat of death could stop him or change his practice. Yeshua says this in Luke 12, verse 4. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But for the one who can kill both body and soul, and has the authority to cast you into hell, yes, I tell you, fear him. Daniel was an excellent man. He was an excellent governor, an excellent interpreter of dreams, an excellent prophet, because he was first excellent in prayer. Daniel did not let his excellent abilities flow into his prayer life. Rather, he let his excellent prayer life flow into his abilities. On the overhead, if you want to be a man or a woman of excellence, you must first 
be a man or woman of excellence in prayer. Now, in the meantime, while Daniel was praying, his enemies were there in the wings watching, you know, with their spy cameras and their drones <laughs> and their zoom lenses and, and tape recorders, recording all the evidence to bring it back to the king. So Daniel 6, verse 13. Then, then they said to the king, Daniel, one of those exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, your majesty. Order the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. So they say to the king, Daniel, this Jew, he's not praying to you. He's praying to his God. And you said anyone who does this will be thrown into the lion's den. Verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel. He made every effort until sundown to save him. So the king's distressed. He realizes he's been tricked. Uh, he tries to find a way to save Daniel. But this king, in addition to being egocentric and greedy and stupid, he's also a wimp. He tries everything to save Daniel, but he can't. <laughs> he lets his governors browbeat him uh, and warn him that the law can't be changed. He's bound by his signature. Look at verse 15. Remember, your majesty, that according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict the king has issued can be changed. Now, can you imagine King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon putting up with stuff like that? The king's supposed to be all-powerful. He's supposed to be a god, remember? <laughs> a god that people worship for 30 days. What kind of god is it who can't make exceptions? So he reluctantly commands Daniel to be thrown into the lion's den. And interestingly, he says this in verse 16. May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Verse 17, notice very carefully the details here. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace, spent the night there without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he couldn't sleep. Verse 19, at first light of dawn, the king gets up, hurries to the lion's den. You know, he gets up early, he runs down to the lion's den, now, remember, kings never do this. Kings don't hurry. Kings remain majestic uh, and regal and, and resplendent. But here he runs because he's anxious for Daniel. You see, you see him slow down as he approaches the den. Look at verse 20 then. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? you catch that tone of voice? Darius was expecting Daniel to respond. He was expecting Daniel to be alive. He was expecting the impossible. This is faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. It's being certain of what we don't see. So the king waits for a response. Verse 21. Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Uh, no, and, and, and uh, I'm sorry. Nor have, I ever done, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed, ordered, gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I want you to note some striking similarities here with this story 
and the account of Yeshua. Because the story of Daniel and the lion's den is a type or a shadow of the death and resurrection of Yeshua. First, both Daniel and Yeshua were falsely accused by jealous rivals. And condemned to, secondly, and then condemned to death by a foreign power ruling over the Jews due to their stand for God. <clears throat> Third, neither resisted. Daniel didn't go into the lion's den kicking and screaming. Yeshua, although innocent, did not defend himself. Rather, we, we read Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that sound before its shearers, he opened not his mouth on the overhead, Isaiah 53, 7. Both are, are, are pleased, uh, but then, and fourthly, uh, both are placed in a cave, uh, in, in, the, in a tomb. Uh, and then fifthly, have a large stone placed over the mouth of the cave or the tomb. And officially sealed with the king's signet ring. Darius's signet ring for Daniel. Pontius Pilate's seal for Yeshua. Both feature concerned admirers then rushing to the tomb or rushing to the den at the break of dawn. Both heroes emerge triumphantly from death and the grave and the powers of hell. Hallelujah. <laughs> And notice in verse 22 that Daniel doesn't say an angel came and stopped the mouth of the lions, but that the Lord sent his angel. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel 3.28 on the overhead, please. Daniel 3.28. Is there someone back? There? Yeah, okay, Daniel 3.28, thank you. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and rescued his servants and earlier, Nebuchadnezzar has said before that that this angel looked like, quote, a son of the gods. Who is this guy, this angel, in Daniel 3 and now again in Daniel 6? I believe it's Yeshua himself, the angel of the Lord. And notice this angel doesn't deliver outside of the furnace or outside of the lion's den, but within them. Just as Yeshua himself wasn't delivered from suffering and death, but only through it. And by going through it, he delivered us. And the Hebrew scriptures, by the way, the roaring lion is often a symbol representing the justice of God. And so we see the real Daniel, who went into the real lion's den, took the divine punishment that we deserve. This is Yeshua himself. And because he is the ultimate Daniel, who before the ultimate lions, we can now go into the little lion's den of our own lives with confidence and boldness and faith uh, and hope. And then what happens next is that the king, all of a sudden, he ceases to be a wimp. Look at verse uh, 24. At the king's command, uh, the, the, um, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Not a very seeker-friendly thing to do. But the king now finally wants to prove how macho he is. Let's look at verse 25. Then the king, then king Darius wrote to all the nations and all the peoples of every language and on all the earth, may you, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Hallelujah. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Amen. Now, I want us to notice that if we live like Daniel, standing for God in a secular, man-centered culture, 
you can expect you can expect clash and opposition and a lion's den. But the message of the book of Daniel is that we have a God who can deliver. Hallelujah. Just as he delivered Daniel from the lion's den, he can deliver you today. But notice again, he did not deliver Daniel from the lion's den. He delivered him in the lion's den. He did not spare Daniel from tribulation and suffering, but was with him in his suffering. Notice also, contrary to the heresy of the so-called prosperity gospel, Daniel doesn't suffer because he's wicked, but precisely because he's godly. Adversity and trials can be a sign of our faithfulness, walking in the footsteps of the master. Adversity can be a blessing and a test and a refiner of our faith. Because we know that, that deliverance isn't automatic. So we must trust the Lord. Deliverance is not God's obligation. Adversity and troubles will happen to believers. Sometimes you'll cry for deliverance and there'll be no answer. This was true for Yeshua on the cross. And the servant is not greater than his master. And then of his life, Yeshua cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Hebrews 12, 3, we're told this. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that we might not lose heart. Because the very same thing might happen to you and to me someday. Indeed, it happened to all the apostles. All were tortured or martyred for the cause of Messiah. Matthew was slain with a sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged to his death through the streets of Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. John was boiled in oil and banished to the island of Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. Yaakov Hasadik, James the Just, uh, was thrown off a pinnacle of the temple and then beaten with clubs. Philip was hanged in Phrygia. Uh, Bartholomew was, was flayed alive. Andrew was crucified, where he continued to preach to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through with a spear in India. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Paul was beheaded in Rome by Nero. The early believers were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. And this time there was no divine deliverance. There are times, for whatever reason, the Lord chooses not to spare his people. Often there is a way out, and here's a real temptation. There's a way out of suffering, but it's not God's way. Look at Hebrews, verse, Hebrews 11, verse 25. There were those who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced cheers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. You see, many were promised release if they'd simply renounce their faith, renounce Yeshua. Uh, and here's, uh, and, 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 uh, here's, the, here's the way they, to, they were told out of unbelievable torture and suffering. Here's the way out. Uh, but, but if you refuse what we're asking you to do, we will make you scream in agony and wish that you were dead. Thank you. But these people, they were willing to die rather than betray the Lord. For they were looking for a better resurrection. Take Polycarp, for example, the Bishop of Smyrna. He lived in the second century when under Nero, the believers were being, being thrown to the lions in the Circus Maximus. 
or, or killed for sport uh, by gladiators in the Colosseum, or covered with pitch and lit a fire while still alive and made it the human torches to illumine Nero's gardens at night. This was the height of the so-called emperor worship cult in Rome. And it's a poignant picture of the last day's tribulation to come. And back in the second century, the oath, the oath of loyalty, which every person in the Roman Empire had to recite to the state, as a state-mandated formula, was simply two words, Kaiser Curios, Curios, Caesar is Lord. The Messianic believers, they said, we'll bend over backwards to honor the civil magistrates. We'll pay our taxes and our tribute to Caesar. We'll make sure our chariots obey the speed limit on the Appian Way. We'll be model citizens of Rome. But one thing we cannot say, publicly or privately, are these two words, Kaiser Curios. Because to do so would be to commit cosmic treason. Because our Lord, our Curios, is Messiah, Yeshua. Hallelujah. And so the first confession of faith for the early believers became this. Yeshua hu Adon. Jesus ho Kyrios. Yeshua is Lord. Caesar is emperor. Caesar is to be honored and respected. Caesar is to be obeyed in civil matters. But Caesar does not and cannot command the ultimate absolute allegiance and obedience that only God alone can require of us. We do not worship Caesar. Now, Polycarp, this, this bishop of Smyrna, he's, he's 86 years old. He's an old man. He's charged with high treason because he refuses to recite this oath, this state-mandated oath. So he's brought into the arena before thousands of spectators. Uh, and the Roman prefects, uh, they like Polycarp. Uh, you know, he's old. He's respected. He's venerable. He, can, he gets along well with the authorities. Uh, uh, they don't want to kill him, <clears throat> but he's committed the cardinal sin of refusing to say Kaiser Curios. And so even up to the last moment, the state officials, they try to spare him. They give him one last chance. I say, Polycarp, just pronounce your allegiance to Yeshua, that's all. Just say Caesar is Lord. And say, away with the atheists. Because one of the ironies of history is that the Messianic believers were actually charged with atheism. Why? For refusing to worship the emperor and refusing to believe in all the numerous Roman gods and goddesses and, and the religious cults. So Polycarp, he smiles, and he says, well, if that's how you want me to say it, that's easy. So he looks up in the stands, looks up to all those representing the Roman state and the priests of all the pagan Roman cults, and he looks at the emperor, and he waves his hand across the crowd and says, away with the atheists. Of course, that's not quite what they had in mind. <laughs> and they say, Polycarp, this is your last chance. Please, just say Kaiser Curio, Caesar is Lord. <clears throat> and then Polycarp says this famous speech. He says, for 80 and six years on the overhead, I've been faithful to my Lord. And for 80 and six years, he's been gracious and merciful to me. How can I deny him now? Yeshua hu Adon, Jesus ho Curios. And with that, he was burned at the stake. 
And so we see a, a scandalous and difficult lesson demonstrated throughout history on the overhead that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the holy congregation. Polycarp preferred to die rather than deny his Lord because he knew his Redeemer and he knew where he was going. What about you? Do you know your Redeemer? Do you know where you're going after death? How much do we really love the Lord? Are you willing to suffer for him if necessary? One of the key ways that God uses to deepen our walk with him, one of the most profound ways we can express our love for him is through trials and suffering. To learn to accept hardship, the hardship and the pain that he permits us to endure that will ultimately yield an eternal weight of glory. This is perhaps the greatest expression of love for the Lord. To appreciate trials and sufferings as a way to refine our character and to serve our Messiah. To allow the Lord to use it to strengthen our trust in him. And this fosters a very personal, intimate relationship between you and the Lord that no one may know on the outside. Sometimes the Lord tests us through suffering. He says, you know, of course you're going to accept me if I'm, if I'm blessing you with wealth and health and happiness and life is good. But are you really committed to me? What happens if I remove my hand of blessing and protection? Do you still love me? Sometimes the Lord allows suffering in our lives to deepen our commitment to him and to see how we trust him in difficult circumstances. Song of Songs 2 verse 14. My dove will be in the splinter of the rock in the darkness of understanding. Doves in the Bible are often a symbol of, of the zadokim, of the righteous ones. And interestingly, the dove is the only bird that doesn't resist when she sees there's absolutely no hope left and she is to be slaughtered. At that point, she ceases to put up resistance. You know, a chicken will put up a fight if it's being killed. Every bird will fight. But when you slaughter a dove, the minute she realizes she can't escape, she peacefully stretches out her neck and accepts her death. When we recognize our suffering ultimately comes from the Lord, we don't resist. Now, this doesn't mean we don't fight to save ourselves. But if it's beyond hope, we can only rely on the Lord and his will for us. Sometimes God takes his saints, his righteous ones in Messiah. And he puts them in the splinter of the rock, in the darkness of not understanding, of needing to trust solely in him. Our sages say this is like a dove being, being chased by an eagle. The eagle wants to tear her apart. The dove's running for her life. Finally, she sees a tiny splinter in the rock, this narrow crevice. So she, so she flies into the splinter of the rock to save her life. And she, she knows the eagle's too big to follow her in there. She tries, she, she, she's tired from running, she, 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 but the, she knows the eagle can't pursue her in the rock. And as she descends, she needs to rest. But to her surprise, she discovers there's a poisonous snake waiting for her at the bottom of the rock. So she can't rest. She can't descend as the snake is below. She can't ascend as the eagle is above. She's trapped in the splinter of the rock. She has to float. But by floating with her wings, she's being hurt uh, and hit and wounded by the sides of the rock. She's bleeding uh, and wounded. 
She can't go in, she can't go out. Wherever, they, you, wherever you go, they want to kill you. And just by existing, you're wounded and bleeding. This is the martyrdom of the saints, described in the persecution of the last days. That's the way it's going to be also for our Jewish people as the forces of hate are unleashed against us in the end times, in the Chemle Shal Mashiach, in the birth pains of the, of the Messiah. We're trapped, we're chased, hunted down by the forces of the anti-Messiah. We're threatened by the poison within of secularism and assimilation of worldliness and wokeism and, and compromise. And by physical attacks from without, by the forces of anti-Semitism and anti-Yeshua, by the snake and by the eagle. Why does the Lord let us suffer? He wants to see how we serve him now, how we love him now. Do we still cry out our love song to him now under these circumstances? It's easy to love the Lord when he feeds us manna uh, and water from the rock. It protects us by day with a cloud and by night with his fire. Of course, you say wonderful love words to him then. But now in, in the face of suffering, when you don't understand what's going on, and you're bleeding and hurting, and there's no escape, no matter where you go, how will you respond to the Lord then? How will you love him then? He says, let me hear your sweet voice, my dove. Like a woman in labor, we can accept the pain if we realize it's all, when it's ultimately birthing in the end. This is when we discover the love of God within us, our personal sanctuary with Yeshua, where he never leaves you or forsakes you. And like Daniel, he'll answer you on the day you call. And even if the dove has to lose her, lose her life by losing her, our life for the sake of the Lord, paradoxically, our greatest tragedy becomes our greatest victory. By losing our life for his sake, we find it. We find true life. The Chaim Yeshua, Life in Yeshua. This is the great lesson of Daniel in the lion's den. Let us be ready for those days. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team, come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Hallelujah. Thank you for this account of Daniel in the lion's den, Lord. Thank you for showing us how Daniel takes a bold, public, resolute, uncompromising stand for you, Lord. Even in the face of persecution, in the face of conspiracy against him, in the face, in the face of threats to his life. He chose honoring you over protecting his own skin. Help us likewise, Lord, to be bold for you, Yeshua. Faithful to you, Yeshua, in both little decisions and big. Lord, every time we're tempted to compromise or to sin or to be neutral or lukewarm or silent, Lord, help us to take a stand and be resolute for you, Yeshua, because others will be watching. And even if no one else is watching, you, Lord, are watching. Nothing's hidden from your sight. Nothing's hidden from your eyes, from the one before whom we must stand one day and to whom one day we must give an account. Thank you, Lord, for choosing Daniel, for choosing Israel, for choosing us for salvation. Help us to remember that chosenness is for service, for us to bless and to serve others. Thank you that you chose both Jew and Gentile alike. There's no favoritism in you, Yeshua. In the same way, Lord, help me to repent, to turn from all jealousy and envy and resentment and a judgmental, comparative, petty, competitive spirit. 
Help me not to be envious of your goodness to other people. Lead me instead, Lord, into love and servanthood. And finally, Lord, help us like Daniel to be people of prayer. We're, we're communing with you, Lord, is the very air we breathe. Give us a hungry heart for you, Yeshua. We worship you, Yeshua. You were the one also put in the tomb, the one also whose stone was rolled against it. And you emerged triumphantly. <laughs> Hallelujah. We pray this all in your name. Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.